Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What is up, everybody? Big day today. I've got Jim to my right. But that's well, that's always a big day. But okay. also an even an even bigger day, and here's why. Across from us virtually right now, we have Clay Hayes, the man, the myth, the legend. The winner, the last man standing of season eight of Alone. I just actually wrapped up finishing uh, the last episode. I watched it this morning because I watch online. Mm -hmm. And uh, holy mackerel, Clay, a season of ups and downs. uh, An emotional roller coaster for me, personally. I've never been so emotionally invested in a TV show ever. I can't even imagine what it's like for you having experienced all these things. So yeah, I mean that's what we're here to talk yeah. about. Cats out of the bag too. Like I didn't, you know, spoiler alert, whatever. But I'm on episode four still. So uh, sorry about that, Jim. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you sh- you but hey, you I'm still gonna watch. Th- I'm still gonna watch. You should have told me that five minutes ago. No, that's all right. But it'll be great though, because I'll come in from you know the the point of view of somebody who hasn't seen the whole season. Right, right. We got to even each other out here. Exactly. It's all about balance in life. So Clay, I mean, once again, congr- congratulations. I mean, so. Amazingly cool, amazingly an amazing accomplishment, and uh, gosh, should we back up? I and mean, we've talked with Clay so many times. Should we have Clay introduce himself a little bit, just so people get a little point just of reference? Briefly, and in the context too of like, uh, who are you, and then why? Why did uh, did they tell you when they reached out to you for getting you on the show? Do they tell you like, oh yeah, we you know we we love your stuff because of this, and you know how'd that all get started here too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brief introduction, and then like, yeah, how how did that first what was that first contact like? So, yeah, Clay Hayes, I don't know, man. It's, uh, anybody that wants to know more about me can look up my YouTube channel. I've got basically my my life is on YouTube. Um, my life revolves around traditional archery, bow making, bow hunting. Uh, it's what I've done for 20 years. Much of that time was just because it was a passion. And then for the last couple of years, it's what I've done, you know, for my, my living. I make a living, you know, doing YouTube videos producing content, basically just do all the things that I love to do and then make videos about that and share it with the world. And it's been amazing. And I think because of that, I kind of got on the radar for uh, some of the folks at the Alone Casting and got in touch with those folks and just kind of went from there. You know, I'd been, I had talked to casting people before and never really got a good feeling about the show, you know, that that they were casting for, never got a good feeling about the people, really. But when I talked to uh, Quinn, the the, ca- the the casting director for, for the show alone, you know, she was just a very, she struck me as a very genuine person. And, and after getting to know her, she is. She's a great, great gal. And so from the very beginning, I had a good feeling about, you know, just the people, the crew that was putting the show together. And went through a couple of rounds of uh, selection, did did some you know different interviews and things like that, and ended up getting a spot on the show and the rest awesome. of history. Now it's it's been going on for a few seasons now, but if anybody hasn't heard of Alone, what exactly is it? So Alone is the the, the basic concept is there's ten people, ten ten participants, and you get to select ten very basic items, things like an axe, a pot. Uh, a ferro rod, bow and arrow, traditional bow, 
um, things like that. No firearms, no tents, no anything like that. So they take these 10 people with their 10 items and they drop you off in the middle of nowhere in a, in a very remote wilderness setting. And you have a case full of camera gear and you film your, your entire journey as you try to make a living in that place. Uh, you have no food. You have to do, you have to provide your own food from the land. You have to build your own shelter. And it's basically the last person standing wins half a million dollars. Right on. That's pretty awesome. I like the premise of it. And uh, and that's what you got to be a part of. Man, there's so many there's so many curiosities even just about the behind the scenes of how they even run something like that. And oh, and, totally. Yeah, totally. Clay, how many? So how many days total were you out there? Well, I was. They dropped me off in middle of September, and it was the end of November when I came out. So I was wow. in there for seventy four days. But before that, you know, I was gone from home for a lot longer than that because we had the COVID quarantine and we had boot camp. So, you know, I left my house around the middle of August. Uh, so I was gone for, you know, from home for quite a quite a while. Wow. You're gone that long. Uh, now I'm already trying to peel back the layers too. look behind the camera. When they drop you in there with a case full of camera gear, they give you 74 days worth of batteries or, or what? Is there ever like somebody coming by to just be like, hey, here's some batteries. No, I can't bring you anything else. Like, sayonara. Yeah, so that's a, that's a pretty common question. Um, so periodically they'll come out and do uh, med checks. So they want to come out, you know, they'll take your vitals, uh, they'll weigh you, uh, make sure you're not, make sure you're still fit to, to continue. Uh, and sometimes, and it happened a couple of times this season, you know, people get to the point where uh, their body's so depleted that they have to pull people, you know, for, for medical reasons. And so they come out periodically and check on you. And so when they do that, they'll they'll bring fresh batteries and, uh, and, and freshen up all that stuff. Got it. All right. Makes sense. When they did drop you off, like when, like you've done kind of all this pre-work and the boot camp, and then they drop you off, describe... Describe that moment when you're like, oh man, this, like, this just got real. Like I'm, I'm out here and I'm alone. Yeah. So there's actually a term that, that one of the previous participants coined called drop shock when they drop you off and like the reality of your situation kind of sinks in. And I never, I never really experienced that because it's something, you know, being dropped off or being alone in remote areas is something that I'm very used to. And so it just felt normal for me. You know, it felt like a, a normal hunt like any other. What was kind of strange about it, though, was like for the first two or three days, though, it, it was very surreal. Like, you know, I had watched all of the episodes from all of the seasons and to have that realization that now I'm the guy. Like, I'm the guy that's going to be on TV that everybody's watching. That was, <laughs> that was surreal for me. Uh, and it, t- it took several days for that, that to wear off. Yeah. I mean, you do YouTube and stuff already. And for the most part, you're doing YouTube on a level where you're setting up a camera yourself and you're kind of doing a lot of self-filming already. And then thousands of people are watching it. But I still feel like when we shoot videos here, I mean, for example, we got MC Ryan over there. We got lights. We got camera. Like, we know 
it just feels normal that, yeah, a lot of people are going to be seeing this. We're talking to a lot of people, but I don't know. It'd be weird for me out there trying to like self-film something. You're like, no, I'm going to, this is a TV show. There's no direct, like director standing right there. There's no one with makeup. It's just, you're out there, but yeah, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people are, are well, watching you. There's that. And then also like, you know, we've hunted with cameras a handful of times, Jim, and like, it's a pain in the ass when somebody else is doing all that work for you. And even just to be like successful in the field when you have all your yeah. normal gear and even a modern firearm or whatever, what have you. I mean, Clay, like w- what layer of complexity did that add to the experience for you? Well, for me, it was, again, it just felt normal because that's what I do, yeah. you know, all the time. It, it just kind of, I, I fell right into it. You know, I'm, I'm used to carrying cameras. I'm used to filming everything. And so that, for me, that was just uh, just part of it. Yeah. It looked natural on the scenes where you're on there. It, it looked. I was just kind of felt like I was watching your regular YouTube videos, which uh, you know is probably a good thing. Yeah, it's like oh, Clay's Clay's doing this thing again. That's why they got you. Um, <laughs> what was that boot camp thing that you brought up though? I didn't uh, I didn't see anything about that. I'm not uh, I'm not up to speed on what that was. So before they launch everybody, there's a, there's like an orientation type period and you basically just go over the rules and, you know, make sure everybody's on the same page with all that stuff, you know, and then when they kick you out into the field. All right. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you, you leave the nest. You good? You good? Yeah. All right. See ya. In the very beginning, couple first episodes, I mean, you shoot that grouse with your bow, you catch that fish and I'm like, oh my gosh. Clay is not surviving. He is thriving. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, is that how it felt to you? Were you like, oh, man, I'm off to a rock and start? Or were you like, oh, man, I'm already hungry? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the power of editing. Um, <laughs> no, I was, I was hungry. It's uh, one of the things. I'm, I'm working on a book about the, uh, the whole experience. Actually, at the editing, it's at the editors right now. I'm waiting on it to come back. But one of the things that I'd written about in there is when I first got dropped off, you know, that, that day that they dropped us off, they, they gave us a giant, giant burrito. And so I, I'd eaten this big thing. And so when I, when I got dropped off, I was walking around, I was like, man, like I could stay here for a hundred days, no problem. You know, but I still had that burrito in my, my belly. So it was, you know, stops like that come easy, you know, when you still have food in your belly. But probably the first, I don't know, five days I was in there, I'd ate, you know, a grouse and a couple of handfuls of fireweed greens, which by that time, fireweed greens are actually not bad if you get them in the spring, but in the fall, they're, you know, (laughs) not very good. They're pretty, pretty tough. And so, you know, you can imagine that's like half a day's worth of food stretched out over five days. Um, But I made the, I made the fishing pole. I was able to catch, I actually caught a couple of fish during that, that first week. They didn't show everything. But even then, you know, four, three or four trout that are 20 inches long, you know, spread out over three weeks. I was eating one, one smoked fish fillet a day and uh, a couple of handfuls of fireweed greens and some mushrooms. And that's, you know, it's not a lot of calories to keep you going. So, yeah, I was, I was very hungry and losing weight rapidly at that time really wow what's what's the process of like smoking a fish in the field to preserve it like you just kind of 
up high over the fire and let the smoke get to it? Or what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so, so when I caught the fish uh, initially, all I did was uh, I piled up some rocks in kind of like a chimney formation and made a, a rack of green alder and just laid the fish fillets out there and then smoked that for a couple hours over an alder fire and basically just tried to dry those fillets down, smoke them to, to, to preserve them so that they would keep. And, uh, and basically that's it. I had no salt, nothing, you know, basically besides the smoke. And the, the, the temperatures at that time, it was still around mid-30s, 40 degrees, uh, and, and, you know, fairly dry, but we had some wet weather at that time as well. Mm-hmm. With those fish, I guess, smoked like that, like what, what's your comfort level of like how long that's going to preserve it for? I mean, I dried them down. I smoked them pretty good. So I was, I didn't feel like they were at, at risk of, you know, going bad or anything. Um, I think I could have kept them for, you know, months uh, yeah. by the time I got done with it. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have, to, I wasn't catching that many fish, so I didn't have that problem. Yeah, yeah, they weren't. Uh, you didn't. You didn't have to preserve them for. Yeah, for too awful long. Were you eating the? I mean, were you eating the? I mean, the whole fish. I mean, fins, bones, everything. Or. Yeah, no, I um I wasn't eating the bones, uh, but I was eating the you know the eyeballs, the brains, the the head is really there's a lot of good fat in the brains, and fat out there is something that you really like. You take advantage of every possible scrap that you can out there yeah um and so like the heads and the backbones i'd put in my pot and i'd stew those down and make like a fish head chowder type stuff with the mushroom uh and then also i had some uh high bush cranberries uh, out there which re- went really well with it yeah, but, you're, actually, uh, it was you're describing good. something that actually sounds not <laughs> the, that bad oh yeah the pan- cranberries they <laughs> pair very well with the smoked trout right gym right yeah you got to keep yourself uh and, yeah, nothing says you can't eat well when you're out there now we're talking about the fish mark but i mean you got catching the fish we're already talking about smoking it but catching it yeah was quite an impressive sight to see your method of catching the fish i mean you basically made yourself a full-on fishing rod and reel yes combo like i would have bought it at cabela's <laughs> like it wasn't just a stick with a string on it. I mean, we gotta we gotta make that clear. Uh, if you if you didn't see, it, it's almost worth just watching the whole thing just to see all the crazy stuff that Clay came up with. Uh, and that that was arguably now. Like I said, I'm I'm not full the way, all the way through. Maybe he came up with something crazier. But that was when I saw that. No, that was blown def- away. I mean that that was cool. That was uh, like Jim said. That wasn't your regular uh, just you know bring a spool of line or yeah. I mean. Is that something you had done before, or did you make that up on the spot? I mean, it was very intricate. Yeah, it was something uh, I had built. Uh, I'd built one of those before going on the show. It was part of my plan from the start. Um, and I actually, I when I first thought that there was a, a decent chance that I was going to get on the show, I basically treated that like it was my job to prepare for the show. And so I practiced a lot of those skills. I, I built that rod. I practiced. I learned to make net. I started gaining weight. I mean, I treated it like it was my job uh, to do that. And so I knew that I didn't want to handline everything because casting with a handline is not the most efficient. You can't really cast that far. And so I knew I needed a rod and reel and um, actually found 
uh, a couple of tutorials online about how to make that rod. So that's not my design. Somebody else came up with that. I just built one uh, while I was out there, which enabled me to cast the lure. Uh, I ended up finding a single bottle cap, uh, an old bottle cap uh, where I was. And that's what I caught uh, the majority of my fish on was that little bottle cap lure that I made uh, with a piece of, so it was the bottle cap, a piece of snare wire, and then a piece of um, paracord for a skirt. And it cast just far enough with that rod and reel to, to catch those fish. That's so cool. I mean, yeah, it seemed like you had like, you know, a shallow area there and then like just a little bit of a drop off. Is that, is that where those fish were? You'd get them was right at that transition there. Yeah, it was a, it was a very tough area to fish. There just, there wasn't a lot of fish. Um, and then, uh, as you saw with a lot of the, the folks that were on the show, you know, the shorelines were just shallow. Uh, there was two places on my entire site where I could get, where I could cast to more than I don't know, eight feet of water. And so I, you know, it took me a little while to find those areas, but once I found them, I was able to, to catch a few fish. Mm-hmm. I tried, you know, the, for, for the whole first five days or so, I tried to fish pretty much right out in front of my camp and it was, you know, 40, 50 yards out, it was still six feet of water. So there was, you know, there was nothing in that, in that shallow stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I can, I would think, I speculate you guys had, some downtime. I think a lot of what we talk about today is going to be food related because I think that was probably, I mean, it's kind of the point. Like, yeah. Or one of one of one of the major points of the show. What were your like your downtime thoughts about food? Did you did you have to like block them out? Like like oh man, I can't stop thinking about a cheeseburger right now or having yeah. a pizza. Or were or were you able to focus that and be like, well, I know I need food, but instead of like wishing I had a cheeseburger, like just like planning, like how am I going to get that next food or am I going to fish tomorrow or am I going to forage tomorrow? Am I going to go hunt deer? Like what did your downtime look like? And and was that hard to push some of those thoughts out? Yeah. And did you have imaginations of like French fries playing football with like cheeseburgers in the stand? Like they all grew (laughs) eyes and mouths and started talking to you. You know, a lot of folks on the show, like they like to, the editors like to put that stuff in there. Um, I never really had that. I never, I never thought a lot about food other than what I need to do to, to find more of it. You know, I didn't think about a ribeye steak or cheeseburger, or any of that stuff, but you know, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges, one of the hardest things for me was, so it was probably mid November started getting cold. We started getting a, a bunch of snow and I had figured, I hadn't seen any grizzly tracks for, for quite a while. I hadn't seen any bears. So I figured the bears were hibernating. So I took all of my remaining jerky, all the remaining meat that I had from the deer that I'd killed and brought it. It was all hanging in a tree in a bear hang, you know, up until that point. And I, I brought all that stuff in my shelter. And so it was hanging from the ridge pole of my shelter. And, you know, it was like right in my face every single day. And I had rationed that out so that I was only eating a very small, like maybe, maybe three, four ounces of jerky a day. Oh, wow. And so, you know, you, 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 every time you walk into your shelter, it's like you have this, this bundle of food is sitting right in your face. And it's, it was that, (laughs) you know, not just like (laughs) reaching in there and grabbing a big handful. That was, that was tough, but and there was a couple of days, you know, there was a couple of days that I did 
eat more than my rations. Um, one day, one day in particular, I, I, um, right after we had a fresh snow, uh, I went out and made a big, big hike looking for a, a, a lion track, trying to, trying to find this lion. And, uh, just for miles and miles all day long, I was trudging through knee deep wet snow. And, and anybody that's ever done that knows that it is absolutely draining, Miserable. you know, and yeah. And you think about that, you know, after you haven't had a decent meal in, you know, 50 days, it's, you can imagine how much that takes out of you. And so a couple of days like that, you know, I probably double what I'd, what I'd ration. So maybe I had like six ounces, six ounces of jerky that day. Um, Boy, a real splurge. Mm, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. You know, but it's like, when you do that, I always felt like, you know, it made me feel not great because it's like, I feel like I'm dipping into my reserves that I'm going to need, you know, cause I had, I, I thought this thing was going over a hundred days, you know, I was fully prepared to go that long. Um, I actually had my meat rationed out to 90 days and that's why I had to limit it so much. Luckily I, I didn't have to do that in the end, but I was, I was ready. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't, I would think that's so tricky. Like you said, you, you do something where, and I'm going to circle back to more of this deer story, but you do something that's so physically, you know, the exertion and like you are, you know, that's a big depletion of your body's resources there. I don't know. Like that's tricky. Cause you don't want to keep decline. I feel like eating a little bit more is going to prevent your decline in the long run too. So, I mean, you're kind of caught in a rock and a hard place there. I mean, yeah, is that I mean you have to, you have to balance, like you have to balance, you know, I, I felt like there was a lot of times, especially there towards the end that I felt like I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do, you know, I, especially like I, they didn't show this on the show, but like that big hike that I did where I was walking through the deep snow, you know, I did that. When I came back from that, I was like, that was the day I realized like, you know what, I can't, I, I can't, I can't afford to do that you know, because I have only a limited number of calories and food and I'm not gaining enough to fuel that kind of activity. And so those are definitely things that you think about. Luckily, not long after that, I started, I started actually catching some rabbits. I had some snares out and I, uh, I'd shot a couple more grouse with my bow. Um, so I was, I was bringing more food in, but, but still not enough to fuel the type of activities that I was used to doing. And that was actually one of the most difficult things that I had to face was, you know, cause I'm a very active guy and to be forced with the realization that I can't be active, you know, I can't do that. That was, that was pretty tough for me. Yep. Yeah. Cir- circling back to the deer, like what, what, I mean, what was the story? I mean, cause you, sh- you shot the deer, you know, fairly early on, like what was the story behind that? Was that, I mean, it's, it sounds like you'd found an area that you know, habitat wise, like maybe would hold some deer ish, but you weren't super stoked on it. How did that go down? I mean, how did you find this buck? <laughs> Sheer luck. <laughs> it was, man, it was tough because there was just, it was a very, it's a hard, it was a tough area. There just weren't very many deer. The whole area, I mean, nobody was seeing any game. You know, I've talked to people, it's hard to tell what exactly is going on out there by watching the show because the editors, you know, you give them thousands of hours of footage. Oh, yeah. And so 
you know, you can imagine boiling down thousands of hours into just whatever it is over the entire season, maybe half an hour or 40 minutes of airtime, you know, so they pull out the stuff that they need to tell the story. But so after probably, I don't know, 15 days of being out there, I finally found some fresh deer sign and it was fresh. Like they, they had been there that morning. And that was the first deer sign I'd seen, like the first fresh deer sign that I'd seen the whole time I was there. So that got me like saying, okay, well, at least there's a chance that I could potentially find a deer. And it looked like there wasn't a lot of fresh deer sign. It looked like from what I could tell, it was two, maybe three deer. And they were in this little localized area in this little willow kind of wetland area. And I'd, I'd actually considered building a tree stand in there, but there were so few deer that one I did I thought that the you know being around that area just you know trying to build a tree stand I thought that might run them out and then the other one the other thing is there was so few deer that I thought maybe there's another area out there that's a little bit better where there's where I might run into a little bit better sign and so I thought sitting in one area sitting in a tree stand would limit you know limit and so I decided to to revert to still hunting, which is something that I do a lot. That's kind of my like area of specialty, uh, still hunting with a, with a stick bow. And so by the third week, I think, I, I can't remember exactly when I shot that deer. It was like day 20 or something like that. I think I'd caught four or five fish, had those smoked. So I had enough fish where I felt like I could gamble a couple of days you know, on this, on this low odd deer hunt. And so uh, I took my bow everywhere that I went. I mean, everywhere I went, if I was going fishing, if I was going mushroom picking, I always had my bow with me because you guys know, I mean, that your opportunity could come up at any time. Yeah. And so I'd went out, uh, went out fishing that morning. I didn't catch anything and grabbed my bow, grabbed one camera and started uh, up into the woods where I'd seen that, uh, that deer sign, found some fresh deer sign from that morning, found a set of tracks and cut those tracks and started tracking. And I'd actually bumped a deer. I bumped a single deer and it was a doe, which per hunting the local regulations was off limits. So I had to, let, Gosh. Had, had to let that one go. And probably an hour later, I'm slipping through the lodge pole there and this red squirrel runs up a tree five, you know, like 10 feet from me, starts chattering, churring at me. You know how they do barking at you. So I squatted down, just like watch the squirrel for a little bit, let her, let the woods calm down and then stood up and took about two more steps. And this buck jumps up out of its bed and bounds off like 40 yards, which for me with my bow is too far, you know, for a deer. And when I saw him, I just stopped, stood stone still. I had the wind in my favor and he didn't know what I was. And thank God it was a young buck, which is about the most, that was the perfect animal. If it had been an old doe or a, or a mature buck, I probably never would have gotten away with this. But stood stone still he you know how they do they'll look at you they stomp they turn around in circles they they can't quite figure it out i had the wind in in my favor and i stood there until 
he put his head down. You know, I, I was watching his body language and he twitched an ear back and I was like, okay, like he's starting to calm down now. Mm-hmm. He eventually, he dropped his head to feed. When he did that, I dropped down to my knees and knocked an arrow. He, he dropped his head down to feed a little bit more. I grunted at him. He threw his head back up, looked at me and started feeding his way towards me. So from oh 40 gosh. yards, so from 40 yards, he starts browsing and feeding his way through the brush until he gets to 25 yards. Now I'm in a lodgepole stand where there's not a lot of cover. I'm in the wide open, the sun shining on me. I have no cover. And there's one group of lodgepole, lodgepole pines between me and him. And he stops 25 yards away with his head perfectly behind a lodgepole pine and his vitals are exposed. And for a deer, you know, 25 yards is not a long shot, but it's, you know, on the edge of what I'd be comfortable shooting at a deer, you know, an elk, I'll shoot that all day. But with so little cover, I was like, you know what? It ain't getting no better than this. I drew back, put that tough head on his brisket and, uh, released that arrow. And it was like, when I, when I saw that arrow sticking out of that buck, I was like, Oh my God, what have I done? And, uh, gave him some time. I wasn't real sure of the hit, you know, uh, gave him some time, laid down and took a nap when I, when I (laughs) was tough to do, you know, but I've, I've, I've bow hunted for long enough to know that, you know, you don't bump them. You don't, you don't pull, you don't follow that track right off the bat. You give them time and, uh, tracked him. He probably, he was dead within in under 10 seconds. I mean, he was, he was done. I actually heard him crash, but still I wasn't a hundred percent positive. I heard him right. crash and, uh, tracked him up. And man, when I saw that deer on the other, like it was around a blind corner, I walked around and saw him laying in the grass and it was like, I've killed, you know, probably close to 30 animals or maybe more than 30 big game animals with my self bows. And I've never reacted to a, uh, a kill like that because it was so much stress on me. You know, my, my, my fish, the fishing was like, I just I had a tough time catching fish. The fish that I had caught, like I was down to my last piece. I mean, you can imagine like, you're down to your last station. You don't know where your next meal's coming from. And it's only day 20. And to have all of that stress just totally mm. taken off the shoulders. That was, I've never experienced anything like that. And I probably never will again. I mean, it's, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And you brought up earlier too, the fact that one of the tough things for you guys out there is that you did still have to, keep in mind the local regs and hunting seasons and all that. And I'm thinking, I guess you got to realize that you put yourself in that situation voluntarily. So that's probably what, you know, you're not like, yeah, you're living sustenance. It's all that, but, but you're there voluntarily. So that's probably why you have to pay attention to the regs and stuff. But golly, just, I, (laughs) well, I mean, and you guys were so limited. In that regard, I yeah. mean, you know, going back to the fish, like I think you guys couldn't use live bait. Is that correct? Yeah, there was no bait, barbless hook. Yeah, I mean, you got essentially selective, selective fish regulations there. Uh, the place is loaded with grizzlies. 
But you, yeah. you couldn't shoot them. Can't shoot one of those. Uh, which apparently was the most, at least from watching, from the outside end, that was the most plentiful, plentiful big game <laughs> around, which I don't know what those things were living on. Yeah, there was, there was that's no joke. I mean, there were grizzlies everywhere. I could have killed one on multiple occasions. I mean, that one, I had, uh, I had one kind of, kind of bluff charge me, and he was, I mean, I, I wouldn't have shot that bear with a bow. The last thing I want to do is shoot a, <laughs> shoot a grizzly with a bow when I don't have a backup or, you know, when he's like looking at me. Um, but there was times when I could have killed one that didn't know I was there. You know, I, I, I could have done that. But no, they were they were off limits, uh, and it was I mean it was it was tough regs, but you know that's just that's part of it, and that's one of the things that you have to accept. Otherwise, you're going to beat yourself up about it, you know, while you're out there and just be hating life. But you know, you got to go in with the mindset that this is the way it is, and I just got to make it work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. With that deer, you built a smoker, which was like amazing i mean i guess kind of back with the with the fishing rod that you built i mean is that something that you practiced beforehand too was that you know building something like that to preserve i guess larger quantities of meat no i i i didn't i didn't practice that i mean i've done that type of stuff before i built uh, i've built log cabin type you know small log cabins and that's basically what i did for that smoker is just built a like a miniature log cabin you know, I could have gotten away with building a just a rack type smoker and like enclosing that with some boughs, but with so many bears around, I didn't want, like there was a three day period when all of my meat was on the ground in that smoker. And it's like a bear could have come in and got that and just camped on that. And there would have been nothing that I could have done about it. Uh. And, so, you know, the reason that I put so much effort into that smoker is because I wanted something to at least slow them down. I knew that if a bear wanted it, they could have torn into that, but I I built it solid enough that it would at least have slowed them down and given me time to assess the situation and and figure out what potentially I could have done about it. I mean, at that point, I I was (laughs) right or wrong, uh, wise or not, I I was ready to do hand-to-hand combat with a grizzly to protect that meat. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, a starved out dude and a, and a grizzly, man, that would be a fight. Yes, very much. The mental struggle. Like, you, you've got your, your wife, Liz. You've got your two young boys. I know that they're your world and vice versa. What was that like? And I guess, you know, like, I don't know. It's like, on one hand, I would think it makes you, all you want to do is be with them. But then did, did they kind of give you the strength at the same time to forge ahead? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, and that, you know, being away from them in the long run actually ended up being one of my biggest challenges to overcome. You know, I've spent, like I said before, I spent a lot of time in the backcountry. I spent a lot of time away from them, but never like never this much in total isolation. I mean, there was no contact at all. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what was going on here at the house. Um, and Liz actually, she went through some pretty trying times, you know, here by herself, which I'll probably end up talking about later. But anyway, um, yeah, they did. They, they, they did give me strength. You know, one of the reasons that I went out there was to provide a good example for my boys. You know, I wanted, especially Coy, my oldest one, I wanted to show him that, give an example of how to come o- overcome 
the adversity that we face. And, and one of the things that they, they included in the last episode, I'm really glad that they did is, you know, there's nothing in life that is actually worth achieving that, that you don't have, that, that nothing's going to come easy that's worth achieving. To achieve anything worthwhile, you have to overcome massive difficulty and, and obstacles. And, and I wanted to show him that even though things don't always work out the way that you want them to or the way that you envision that if you keep after it, you know, just one foot in front of the other, that you can overcome those things. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was a, for me, that was a big, big part of what kept me going in that, especially in those later days is I was, I was literally starving. I mean, I, I got, I lost a lot of weight out there. Uh, the days were very short. It was getting dark at four o'clock and not getting light till eight, you know, eight or nine even. Yeah, it was tough. Jeez, that is. That's brutal. That's uh, one heck of a commitment to uh, teach your boys uh, an important life lesson. <laughs> yeah. Having gotten to meet your boys, though, when we were doing the uh, self-bow build pod venture that we did. Yep. I'm sure they probably thought it was all really cool when they finally got to watch it, seeing all that stuff that you're making out there in the middle of nowhere. And, I mean, they, they seem like... Uh, they seem like However old they are, I know they're not they're not that old. They're probably already like trying all that stuff themselves now, aren't they? Yeah, we've done a couple of um videos where we've like recreated stuff, but you know, for the YouTube channel where I've recreated stuff from the show and they helped me build rebuild the my my shelter from out there and uh and done some other carving type uh type projects. So yeah, it's been fun watching the show with them, watching letting them see what some of the stuff that I I did out there. Yeah. Are they uh, they pretty proud of dad? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I bet you're out there, and your world is like I don't know. Like when I when I look at it, it's like your world is so small and yet so big at the same time. Like you're in you're in this vast wilderness, but like your personal world is so small, and and what you have to do or accomplish on a daily basis is really simple. Right? Like you had to, you know, food, water, shelter. But the consequences for not being able to get those things or, or make those things happen are are giant. So was that like refreshing in a way though, to have your life kind of boiled down to that level of simplicity? Yeah. I mean it, it you're basically responsible for yourself and providing for yourself and that's it. That's that's your entire world is providing for yourself from what the land can provide and that's a very simple yet very complex thing mm -hmm. uh, it's not it's not an easy thing i mean the, the land doesn't care it's completely indifferent to you and so it, it is you know and one of the one of the interesting things about that is when your entire responsibility is reduced to that and you have so much time alone you get to, it gives you the opportunity to be introspective like you very rarely get. You know, people today don't ever get that. You know, we're, we're com constantly distracted by social media or television or, or other people. And so the time where you just get to, you know, focus on looking inward, you know, you get to question things like why you live your life the way that you live it, you know, why, uh, why you do things the way you do. And, that, and that's, that's a powerful thing that very few people get to experience this, you know, today. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you'd have to. There's really no other way to do it than to intentionally, well, intentionally or unintentionally, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. put yourself in a situation like that, which is very rare. What's the, uh, do you have a new happy medium that you've achieved now in life back in normalcy, so to speak, where uh, I, I, I'd have to assume doing what you were doing, in fact, I'm yeah, I'm pretty darn certain, you wouldn't want to live like that forever. And so that's where, you know, sometimes you look at things and you're like, well, yeah, maybe we have advanced a little bit as a society. But have we, like, has everything we've done as a modern society been an advancement? Like, do you do you have now this this area that you're at where you're like, well, I kind of like a little bit of this uh, primitiveness, so to speak? Well, I don't know. I think I did a pretty good job of, simplifying our lives before I yeah. ever been out there. You know, I've always been, I've never chased the, the promotions. I've never chased money. Um, I've just followed my heart and done the things that, that I felt like I was meant to do. And it's been amazing. You know, that, that, that's been a, an ex- amazing experience, but yeah, I mean, being out there in the woods, you, you de- definitely, it's a, it's a struggle, you know, uh, the people, that think that they want to go and live in the woods like that indefinitely. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful experience for people to do. I think everyone should go into the wilderness at some point just to do the things that I had talked about before, just be introspective, look inward, question why you do things the way that you do them, uh, because you might learn things about yourself that you would never realize otherwise. But to live that way long term is, is that's rough. You yeah. know, we, we, I like, uh, I like my bed, you know, I like, uh, not having to, to fast for five days until I can catch a rabbit. You know, those, those things are pretty, they're nice. Indeed they are. I, I bet that is nice. Um, having more than 10 things. Yeah. Not that I'm saying like, you know, oh, I having all this stuff. You're but all about the stuff, Jim. What? Come it's on. Just, Don't make me have just to be this material guy and a material. No, but you know. It it's, it's a, you, most of us have ten things that we usually use a lot. But it's nice if you're like, well, I need an eleventh today. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's telling me I can't. <laughs> I mean, so speaking of material things, though, which you had very few of. Some you came with, and some you worked really hard to get. Like you built you built your shelter out there. You built your cabin. Tons of time and effort went into building that. Uh, which it, it really was an, an amazing shelter, and, and you spent so much time in that shelter, and it really was so pivotal to you being able to survive out there, to last out there, to have uh, that place of shelter to go when the weather got bad. Was that, were you like glad to see it go, or was, was there, like, did you feel like you were kind of giving up a very important place, or a place that at least had been very important to you for a really long time? You mean when I, when I, when it come time to go home? Yeah. Yeah. Was that like, almost like a, like no, it was, uh, a bizarre thing? No, man, I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to go. And I had been ready for a long time. You know, there was one other thing that I'd, I'd said out there that they used on the show was, um, you know, when I first went out there, I did it for me, you know, I did it just 
because these are the things that I've been doing my whole life. And I wanted to just, I wanted to put those things to the test. I wanted to see if I could go out there and, and do it. But at some point I got over that and I would have gone home, you know, I'd have gone home, you know, right then. But I, you know, I made the commitment when I went out there to, I was just not going to quit. You know, they, they would have had to, I was either going to win it or they were going to have to pull me out, you know, because I lost too much weight or for medical reasons. But, you know, when it, when it did time come time to go, you know, I, I spent, like you said, I spent a lot of time in that shelter, but no, I, I had no sentimental attachments to that at all <laughs> or that place. I was just ready to get back home and see my, see my wife and, and kids. Man, I, uh, I believe it. You saw so many cool things out there. You know, I mean, it really was uh, just, a, I mean, as tough as I'm sure it was, like it was, it was beautiful and you saw some cool things. What do you think was like the coolest thing that you saw out there? Like anything like really stand out? There was a lot of cool things, man, uh, and, and a lot of stuff that, di- that didn't make the show. Um, you know, having the, having the bear run up to me was, you know, that's something you never forget. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah. I wasn't, and it surprised me, you know, when he, when that bear came up to me, I wasn't, I never got the shakes. I never, it wasn't a scary thing for me. And I think primarily because his body language to me, you know, I've spent my life around big animals. I've, you know, I, I grew up, my dad raised bison. I've hunted my whole life. Um, I've been around bears. I've, I've been around, like I said, big animals my whole life. And so reading animals, body language is, you know, it's just, it's something that comes natural to me. And when he was coming to me, what it reminded me of was a, a flushing dog, you know, like that's going in on a pheasant. He didn't know what I was. He was coming to me out of curiosity. He, he, he didn't, his body language didn't say aggression to me. And so I just thought it was cool seeing the mountain lion come up behind me. I mean, that's once in a lifetime thing. I mean, I've seen mountain lions before, but they've always been in trees above dogs. Like I've never seen a mountain lion that close in the woods, just doing his thing. One of the coolest things, though, was right at the end. So in this last episode, they, they show that, that I had a, a fisher that was coming into camp. And the, like the fisher, I was, they, they made it look like I was trying to run him off. And I, I wasn't really. I was actually, I enjoyed having him around camp. Uh, by that time, I was catching a few rabbits and, and had some grouse. And so I would leave my bones and stuff at, right outside the camp door. And he'd come every night for the last, for probably the last 10 days or something. He'd, he'd come back every single night. And I really looked forward to him coming and seeing him. And at one point I left the door to my shelter open and had bones right by the shelter door. And he came up, he was eating the bones and I was laying on my bunk and he was three feet from me, you know, three Man. feet from my face. And he actually started to come inside the shelter like he had his head inside my door and i looked down there and i said don't you come in here I mean, he kind of looked he looked at me and he backed out and he went back out into the, the front of the shelter and kind of poking around but that was just such a cool experience uh to have that i mean what a what a fascinating animal just a very cool animal and he i'd only i'd only seen him at night he would only come back to to my shelter at night no i take that back i did see him one time uh, i was out on my trap line i saw him one time 
during the day. He was actually, I watched him chasing a snowshoe hare through the timber. And that was the first time I ever saw him. But the last day, the day that, that, that I went home, the whole crew, the, 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 the producers and everybody standing around and they're doing that exit interview type thing, you know, where they told me I was the last one. And the fisher, there's a little ridge behind camp. He came up during the day while everybody's standing there. And it's like he came up on that ridge and stands there and looks at everybody. It's like he's saying goodbye or something. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like the first time he'd ever come up to camp during the day. But that was that was definitely one of the coolest things uh, that, is that was cool. out there. Man, yeah. that is, I mean, that is absolutely amazing and super cool. And like you said, like, I don't know, some interesting, I don't know, not, not symbolism, but it kind yeah. of like, I don't know, man. It seems, was, seems like there's something to it. You see any, uh, you see any interesting weather phenomena, like non-animal related phenomena up there? I will actually, Jim, I'm going to go back to one thing that I find curious, though, or, or interesting. So I had uh, in here, you know, my first question that I had written down was the coolest thing you saw. And I had scariest moment. Oh, yeah. And then I had, you know, the bear charge question mark. And what I like is that um, both those things were one of Clay's coolest moments. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. What, what were you going to yeah. say, Jim? Oh, yeah, I got charged by a bear. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> should have been there uh no thanks but yeah like how about it, just non-animal rid stuff you see any like just odd weather phenomena you see any ufos <laughs> i mean that's really what actually i'm ultimately getting let's get to here. the crux of your yeah, question yeah, yeah. there just Jim. any stuff that was like unexplainable um no i didn't see any didn't see bigfoot didn't see any ufos um unfortunately i was really looking though i was really looking for bigfoot <laughs> Now, but the, the weather was, was crazy on that lake. Like the wind, uh, they, they showed, I can't remember what episode it was, but they showed one time I was out on the lake shore and like doing like a, a weather report. And the video from that day does not do that justice. I mean, it was gnarly. Like I could stand up at a, almost a 45 degree angle into the wind and the wind would hold me up. Uh, and I'm a, fairly narrow especially I was, I was pretty narrow by that time <laughs> <laughs> but the what you know the 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 waves were coming and white capping and the wind was cutting the top of the waves off and picking that that mist up and it was blowing like sideways sheets of of like horizontal rain but not rain it was coming off the, it was picking the lake up and and blowing that across the lake it was it was, it was awesome Jeez. um but one of the one of the cool things that I write about in the book, it was not cool at the time, but the, like I said, the wind on that place was, there was, so there was big glaciers up at the head of this, um, this big glacial valley. And when the, when the wind came over from over the coast range, it hit those glaciers that would super cool, which would cause all that air to condense. And the only place that it had to go was down that narrow valley. And so once that, once that wind got into that valley, it was strong, like, I don't know, 50, 60, like hurricane force winds coming up that thing. And I was laying in my shelter one night and I heard trees coming down, you know, and you're, you're trying to sleep in the midst of a lodgepole stand and you can hear trees falling. And that was, that was one of the most nerve wracking, you know, stressful nights that I had out there because at, at any minute you, you're thinking that this, that a tree could come down. 
And there was one lodgepole that was leaning. It was probably a hundred year old lodgepole. It was leaning over the top of my shelter. And so I'm thinking about this tree all night long and actually ended up sleeping like in a curled up in a little ball. Cause if, you know, when I was stretched out, that, that tree was leaning over where my legs would have been. And I was thinking about that thing. <laughs> that's like, all, that's all I could think about was this tree coming down and breaking both my legs. Luckily, uh, the tree didn't come down, but I went, when I got up the next morning, there was a treetop that was probably six inch treetop that had come down and hit the ground within 35 yards of the shelter. Oh. Um, so if that, you know, if that had come down into the shelter, that would have been game over. I mean, that's something like that could kill you. Yeah, yeah, that's a bad deal. I mean, they call those yeah. things widowmakers for a reason. Holy, holy windstorms, Jim. Mm-hmm. How did you keep track of time? And like, is it imp- is it important to keep track of time, or is it better to not think about the time? You know, I didn't. I didn't keep track of time because it didn't matter to me. Uh, I didn't care what day it was uh, because I was. In my mind, I was there till I either won or they pulled me out. Mm, so yeah. it didn't matter. That I mean, sense. I mean, it, it like, yeah, you'd set those, I mean, really just two milestones or whatever. And that's, yeah, that's it. The, uh, as it got towards the end, you know, you'd, well, you'd gone a lot of days without food, but a little, little bit, a little bit of a stint there. W- when you trap those rabbits, like how did you how did it how did you feel well maybe mentally when you caught those things that's got to be a you know just like the deer or the trout I mean that's got to be just a an incredible moment and then so maybe talk a little bit about that but then like how did you feel like after eating them like like physically with your body could you just feel that like strength like a rejuvenation Yeah so I started you know there, there weren't very many rabbits around and so I started seeing some hair sign probably right around the first part of November. And so I started uh, setting some snares and I actually, I had to, I'd used all my snare wire to build my shack and to build the smoker. And so I had to scavenge wire out of the smoker to be able to set snares with. Cause I, you know, when I first got there, I wasn't seeing any signs. So I right. hadn't planned on setting any snares. I finally started seeing a little bit of sign and set out, you know, probably a dozen, maybe 15 snares to start with. And I just added to those, you know, as, as time went on, but I caught that first one. And I was, I was, it was, you know, not nearly on the level that the deer was, but definitely very much appreciated at that time because I had, I had rationed my deer out so, so slimly um, that I was still just dropping weight in more than a sustainable rate so i started catching those rabbits and at that time i i was when i first started catching rabbits i was like okay that's another day that's another day i can stay here another day i can stay here but after catching a couple of them they they had warned me about my weight you know they said you know we're we're concerned about your weight and once they did that i stopped looking at rabbit and grouse as as an extra days and just started eating those in addition to what my rations already were. Hmm. And so towards the end, I actually gained a little bit of weight back. I'd gotten down very, very thin. I, I think I was down to 140 pounds and came out of the one at 142. 
And so I lost 40 pounds while I was out there. I went in at 180, My which is, gosh. I gained, I gained a lot of weight to go in, but I haven't weighed 140 pounds since I was probably a freshman <laughs> in high school. And I lost a lot of muscle, you know, while I was out there, a lot of all my body fat, I was probably, I mean, I was, I had no body fat at all. I was probably yeah. four and a half, 5% body fat. I look like an ultra marathon runner when I came out, but the, when I, when I would catch those rabbits and like the deer shanks and all that stuff, like, um, I would cook, uh, I, I hate they didn't show it, but I did a, I actually did a cooking show. Like I put together a <laughs> cooking show. Oh man. So I'd cook what I call chilco soup. So I'd have either some kind of deer, you know, I, I kept the shanks and the, the, you know, all that type of stuff, the neck and whole pieces. Um, but for like the rabbit, I would take, so every evening there was a bunch of what they call uh, a plant called um, uh, Labrador tea. It's like a little evergreen shrub makes great, great tea. So every evening after dinner, I would go fill my pot up. I'd put some of this Labrador tea on, put that on the fire and just let that simmer as the fire died down. Next morning, I would get up, I'd heat that back up and drink like two, two quarts of that, like every single morning. And then I would go back down to the, to the lake shore, fire's still going. I'd put some more water in my pot and I'd put whatever meat that I was going to have that day. So let's say it was a rabbit. I'd put that in that pot about two inches of water and I had a 12 inch, I think it was a 12 inch, two quart Dutch oven, put that back on the fire, let that meat simmer while I was out checking my trap line or doing whatever. So that would simmer for a couple of hours. I'd let the fire die down. I'd build the fire back about two o'clock in the afternoon. So the meat had already simmered for, you know, hours. Uh, I would throw in a bunch of cranberries, a bunch of pine mushrooms, um, and then I had all for my deer, I had rendered down a bunch of fat, you know, all the internal fat, the fat from his rump. Um, and so I had probably two quarts of deer fat and I would just break off a chunk of that deer tallow, throw that in there and let that simmer, you know, until five, six o'clock when I would have dinner. So that whole pot would just simmer for like seven, eight hours and it would fall off the bone. I mean, it was. Mm. It was it was thick enough. It was freaking amazing. I mean, the, the, the cranberries, the tartness of the cranberries, and the you know the the hardiness of that that meat and any kind of marrow that was in the bones. It was really nice. really good. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. sounds it sounds good. It was. Would you it was eat something it? that I would. Yeah, I would. It was something that I would eat. I'd cook it. High bush cranberries. That's the that's the ticket because I try I actually tried to cook it here with like regular cranberries and it's not mm. the same. Like you got to have those high bush cranberries. That's Interesting. I mean, know. it does sound like you're like you're making me hungry. Just like, oh yeah, that sounds it's so primitive, and yet it sounds so good. But then I also wonder, like, if you did have some, maybe that's a bad example because it just actually sounds good. But like some things, when you're at that level of hunger or even starvation, mm-hmm. like if you had that now, like after being back, if you'd be like. Oh man, that is terrible. But, <laughs> but it's just so good when you're in like that kind of uh, moment or or condition. You uh, you mentioned the the Dutch oven or some sort of like a pot or something like that, and uh, we talked about the stick bow and uh, a few other items. We mentioned this whole ten item thing. If you went back and looked at it. The 10 items you brought, one, what were they? And then two, uh, would you switch that up at all, knowing what you know now, having been through what you've been through? 
so first of all, no, I wouldn't switch anything. I was very happy with everything that I took. Sweet. Um, and, and everything that I took was, you know, I, 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 there were, there were several items that I really debated on. You know, I, I really thought hard about not taking a ferro rod because I'm, I'm very confident in my ability to start a friction fire, even in that environment, a cold, wet environment. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. And even after being out there for so long, I feel like I could have done that and swapped out that ferro rod for some other, some other item. But even though I could have done that, I, I'm still glad that I took it because, you know, if I had taken, if I'd not taken it, I would have had to start friction fire and I would have either had to start a friction fire every day, which is a fair bit of effort, or I would have had to keep a coal going all the time, which means processing a lot of firewood. So either way, you know, you've got a, a pretty substantial caloric cost. Yeah. Uh, and so the, for me, the, the ferro rod was just like a, a calorie savings thing. So let's, I, I always forget something. So let's see, what did I take? I took, a, took my sleeping bag, ferro rod, pot, bow and arrow. Keep track of this because I'm not going to remember all 10 of <laughs> <laughs> I took uh, my Leatherman, which was indispensable. Yeah. I took, I took an axe, a, uh, the biggest silky saw that they would allow me to take, which was the Katana Boy 650s and freaking like a, chainsaw what seven paracord which i used the inner cores of that for making my um uh, i made a gill net out of that and then also made a landing net trap wire and i i'm missing the last one somebody will remind me of it it, it seems like 10 know. items would be easy to remember but i can't right yeah you're close oh, i think yeah. that it we either covered them or we missed maybe just one i'm trying to think i watched the whole darn thing Maybe it'll come to us. Pot? No. Oh. Yeah, I think I mentioned that, but I, yeah, I, I took a pot. That was, you know, I wanted to, t- I could have, that's another thing that you could have gotten away without. But in my mind, like, a pot is so, I mean, come on. You, Very you, multi-use. It, like, it's multi-use. I didn't, like, I just drank straight out, of, straight out of the lake. I didn't boil water or anything. I mean, it's, it's a, such a pristine area. I mean, the glaciers are right there. You're, like, go- drinking glacial milk. Um, so I didn't feel like I needed to boil water, but when you're um, on such reduced caloric intake, you like you need to get every bit of nutrients out of whatever you're cooking, and uh, the best way to do that is just what I was talking about—a low, slow, long braising. Because like some of the when I would cook a rabbit for eight hours, really slow like that, it would suck every bit of nutrients out of those bones. I mean, those bones were like bleach white when I pulled them out of there. Oh yeah. And same with the deer. Like I would cook those, if I had a shank or something like that, all of that bone marrow would just melt. All of that connective tissue would, would just absolutely melt and turn into this gravy. And so, I mean, it was, it tasted good. I mean, the, the pine mushrooms, I, I found a bunch of pine mushrooms. I probably take 40 pounds of pine mushrooms while I was out there. And those things are awesome. Uh, but when you combine that and the, the yeah. cranberries and the, the, the fat from the deer, I mean, it's just, it was yeah. so good. And low and slow, you're not, nothing sizzling, spat, you know, spattering all over the place. And you're not, uh, you're also not getting any degradation of anything that you got in there. Cause I know, you know, certain, certain fats or things will degrade with high heat. So you're just keeping everything in there. You're just sort of changing its form a little bit. Yeah. Soaking yeah. soaking everything out of it. Full disclosure, moment of honesty, Clay. I was watching the fun, the finale today. Like I got emotional, right? But I can't even imagine like 
what was it like for you in that moment when they were like, Clay, you're, you're the last one. It's over. You know, at first you can see it on my face. Like when, when they told me I was in disbelief, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me what they were saying because it's, it's interesting. It was something that Teresa had said on that same episode, that last episode was when they, when they come out, especially that late, you know, when they come out, especially when they come out and it's, you don't expect them to come out. It's like, uh, you can't help but to think maybe, maybe today is the day. Maybe this, today is the day that, that they come to tell me that I'm the last one here. But at the same time, it's like, you can't, you know, if you let yourself hope that, that that's the last day and that, that that's going to be it. And it's not, that can be crushing. Um, mm. And we've, and if we watch, if you watch season six, I think it was season six when Barry did that. He, you know, he was convinced that his wife was coming and he was the last one and he had won. And then they walked away and it was like, man, that just rips your heart out. I could see and that so, being a, a crushing, crushing blow. Yes. I mean, it could be. Um, and so I had built up this mental block. Like I had guarded myself against hoping for anything like that for so long that when they finally said I was going home, it just like didn't register. You know, it, it was like, I don't know what I'm hearing. Mm. And it didn't, it didn't register until, and, until they said, you're the last one you've outlasted everyone. And when they said that, it was like, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it was, it was emotional because that meant I was going home. I mean, that's something I've thought about every single day for the last 74 days. Uh, what was that sap phone call like getting to hear your family's voice? Getting to hear my wife's voice, you know, for the first time and, uh, in 74 days was amazing. Um, I wish that she could have come up there, but you know, the COVID, you know, nobody was allowed to come into Canada at that time. And so it just wasn't possible, but, you know, being, hearing her voice was absolutely amazing. And then we talked like, you know, during, we had a little bit of a recovery period after I came out, uh, before I was able to go home and we talked every single day, like for hours uh. a day. And then finally getting home and getting to see them, you know, getting to hug my boys for the first time. And, you know, that long getting to kiss Liz, it was, it was, it was awesome. You know, being away from them for that long gives you an appreciation that it's hard to get without, you know, without going through something like that. Totally. I was actually just before just before getting on this, I was actually putting together some video. I had a I had a GoPro with me, and then Liz had a GoPro there. Like when we came together for that first time, it was, it was pretty emotional. So I'm trying yeah. to put that together for a video. That's oh. awesome. Great. Well, looks like I got another. Uh, got to suck them back one more time when I watch. Uh, I'm watch... not crying. You're crying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was. Uh, on a less serious note, yeah. what was the first meal you ate when you got back home? Like I, home, home. I had that same question. <laughs> you know, I don't, Liz asked me that. She said, what did I cook the first meal you got home? And I don't remember it. I do remember the first, the first meal that I had, like when I, when I got on the airplane and I, I landed in Vancouver, I had a cold IPA and a, and a double decker cheeseburger and a piece <laughs> of cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> 
I actually had two beers. <laughs> yeah, and at, and at 140 pounds, and after having just eaten almost nothing for 74 days, were you just absolutely <laughs> wasted? I didn't have a very far walk to my room, so I was good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, just an absolute fat and calorie bomb, and just pure oh, enjoyment yeah. there. And did your body take it? Like, yeah. Like how did? Yeah, yeah. So they, they, you know, they don't just like kick you back out. You know, they keep you there for a little while. They make sure okay. um, that you, you know, they have a refeeding program. So they they make sure that you're in good healthy conditions okay. before, before they send you home. Yeah. Not just like, hey, he, here, eat everything, and then like now all no. of a sudden you're just like basically bulimic because you can't <laughs> hold anything down. I know yeah, no. on uh, like I know from like um, just some of my experiences like hunting or even just, you know, the handful of like backcountry trips that I've done where you, you definitely have a lot more resources than you have, but you do have like a finite amount of resources and I always find it like, like somewhat just interesting. Kind of when you you're plucked out of that environment, and you're and you're back in your daily life, and then you go to a grocery store. Like what, what was it like being in a grocery store for the first time? Was that like sensory overload, or was even the modern world like a? Was there an element of sensory overload where all of a sudden like the, you're just like back in the busy and like the colors and just like the food of it? like the sheer quantity of food that's just like available at your fingertips. Was that like an, an interesting transition or observation for you at all? Not as much as it would be, or you, you would think it would be. I mean, it just, it felt normal to me. Uh, I try to avoid going to town. I mean, we, we live out in the middle of nowhere here in Idaho and you know, the grocery store is an hour away and Liz is usually one that does all that stuff. So I do my best to not go to town. Um, <laughs> And so it was probably, I was probably back home a month before I ever even, you know, went anywhere. Yeah. Um, it was different though. Like when I first came out, like that first night, you know, out of the woods back in the, the, the lodge where they have us, you know, do this, you know, reorientation or whatever period you got to go through before you go home. Like that whole first night, I don't think I slept one wink. I didn't sleep at all. Really? That night, not not a wink. It was just, I don't know, man. I, I I've been on that lake for so long, and it's like on the lake you have it's constant, you know, natural noise. You have the wind, you have the waves, you have the ambience of the lake, and then to be like removed from that and put into a box where you've got an air conditioner running or a, or whatever it was, a heater at that time of year, you got you can hear people talking, but then, you know, on top of that, there's all of these things going through your head. And, and it's like, I don't know, there's a term for it where there's just flashes of stuff, just, you know, rapid fire in your head. Uh, and I, you know, there was no way that I could sleep and it wasn't until the next night. And I only think I slept very good the next night. I think it probably took me about three days to get reacquainted to actually like sleeping in a bed and, and hearing unnatural noises. Weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected that. I'd expected it to just show up and be like, Oh, this is great. Like out. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was really strange. I mean, they, I spent, uh, when that, when I first came out, you know, I got back to the lodge and they had hand, they handed me a blank journal and a pen. And I, I went through, 
three pens while I was there, wrote like 70 something pages, which has formed the, the, the foundation for the book that is now at the editors. And there were so many times out there that I, I probably would have given $5,000 for a 10 cent Bic pen and a, uh, a spiral bound notebook, uh, just to be able to record my thoughts, but they wanted us to talk to the camera yeah. instead of writing. <laughs> so we, we couldn't have any of that stuff, but yeah, that's what I did the whole time I was, you know, back at the lodge. I just wrote, I talked to Liz on the phone and I wrote. Yeah. Yeah, man. It definitely seems like, uh, yeah, all that stuff. And then I keep asking you about like, oh, so what was it like when you got back to civilization? You're like, well, I, and I know this about you and I know you and, uh, you're just not really much one for civilization. So you really were, I mean, you were, you'd you, built Clay, and prepared you're yourself. Very, you're not very civilized, Clay. I think that's what Mark's <laughs> trying to say. That is not what I was trying to say. Well, but you know, I've, I, you've, an awful lot like you've been training your whole life for this. <laughs> yes. That's right. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, uh, any new perspectives on life that you take with you after the experience? You know, that. Uh, they had mentioned it in the show. They 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 put this in the show, but I, um, you know, stoicism has been a big part of my life for I don't know five six years or so. Um, and and there was a couple of like stoicism stoic principles that I learned deeply, you know, out there. I, a lot of times with stuff like that, you kind of know that stuff on the surface, but it's not driven into driven into you and 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 integrated into the person that you are until you go through some sort of challenge or some sort of adversity like that. And so one of the things that really became a part of me out there, one of those principles is that any kind of suffering that we experience, it's, it's of our own making, you know, and it's, it's of our own making simply because of the way that we view things. You know, I went through I went through some, um, like a, like, I mean, I got depressed while I was out there. When the days started getting short, I had very little to eat. So I was, you know, you had this darkness, you had slow starvation, you had isolation from family. And, you know, there was a time when I got very down and it was simply due to the fact that I was viewing my time there as something that I had to suffer through instead of viewing it as an opportunity. You know, and I eventually got through that. And part of the reason, part of the thing that got me through that was thinking of my boys. You know, I thought they didn't really show this a lot, but, you know, I thought of my boys watching that and seeing that on television. Like I'm sitting here in my shelter moping around and being depressed and complaining about my situation. And that's not the, that's not what I want them to see. And so the thought of them watching that brought me out of that. And it completely changed my perspective. I no longer saw the time that I, I had there as something that I had to suffer through, but I saw it as something, as an opportunity to show them how to overcome adversity. I saw it as an opportunity to make them Christmas gifts and to finish all these things and to experience this, this once in a lifetime thing as best I could. And so when that, when I had that change of perspective, and that's all it was, you know, nothing changed about my situation. I just changed my perspective. It's like all of my suffering that I've been going through, all of that went away. I mean, mm. just like that. And so that's, that's one of those things that was just like driven into, you know, driven into my bones. 
you know, another thing that I went, that I really realized is that all things are just as they should be, no matter what happens. And, and what an example that I have to illustrate that is like my fishing and my deer, like when I was fishing, the, the fishing was very, very difficult. You know, I had caught just enough fish. Like I said earlier, I caught just enough fish to, to get me ahead for maybe a couple of days, a couple of days until I, you know, I had that fish stocked up and I felt like, okay, now I can gamble this on these couple of days on going and, and trying to find a deer. At the time I was like, man, this really sucks. The fishing sucks. This is terrible. But if the fishing had been better, I may never have gone deer hunting. So it's like, a lot of times things happen and we judge them as being bad, but it's not until later that time gives that thing context that we can really judge it accurately, you know? And so, I mean, things happen, just accept things. If we accept things the way they are, the things that happen, I mean, you never know what's going to transpire down the road. So just, you know, live in the moment, live, accept things the way they are and move forward. Yeah. And then the other thing is my, the importance of my family. I mean, just like my family is, is always around, especially Liz. I mean, my wife, we've been together since we were 17 years old. She's always been there. And when someone or something is always there, you can take it for granted. Uh, and, and being away, you know, having that thing not there gives you that perspective, you know, it, it makes you realize how much those things mean to you. And so, you know, those three things were the big takeaways, you know, I ended up winning the big, you know, I won the thing. I, I, I walked away with half a million dollars, but uh, that's not, you know, the, the, those three lessons to me are more valuable than anything else that I could have walked away from, yeah. from that experience with. For sure. I mean, man, I mean, that's definitely what you just said is, you know, hopefully a lot of people listen to this podcast and listen to that because definitely a lot of um, really, really sound words of wisdom there. And then also along with that, the different folks who, you know, put themselves out there for this experience, you know, everybody went into it, not everybody, but people went into it with different motivations, I guess, right? None of them wrong. But, you know, the money factor throughout never really seemed to be your motivation. So I think, I don't know, I think, yeah. I think that's pretty pretty cool. So, yeah. Jim, any any other questions from you? Yeah, I just have one more, which is, I mean, you're the kind of guy that likes to go out in the wilderness a lot, do cool hunts and stuff like that. I'm assuming you still want to do that. Would you ever go back to that place? Or are you kind of like... No, screw that. I, <laughs> <laughs> or was it cool enough that you're like, oh yeah, hey, I'd, I'd go back. I'd take the boys, or you know, I wouldn't want to go back there and have to scrape a living out of that landscape. But at, like going back, you know, if that place, and it's only about eight hours from us to drive there. You know, when the borders open up, I would love to take Liz and the boys back, charter a boat go back to, to where we were and just show them around the, the place. That would be awesome. I, I, we, we may end up doing that actually. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's awesome. That's Sweet. awesome. Yeah. 
I've got I've got I've only got one more question, Clay. But any anything any any thoughts that you've had along the way, or something that we didn't ask that you thought was cool or important or anything like that? Nah, I mean, I think we covered it all. Uh, it was a once in a lifetime experience. It was a, a transformative experience. It was a profound experience, and it's something that you know very few people are ever going to get to do something like that. Mm. But even if you can't do something like that, like I said before, I think just unplugging for a little while. I mean, there's that would do so many people so much good. It's just unplug for a week, go into the wilderness by yourself and just be, just be there. And I think you might learn something. And, and like I said, that introspection is something that we rarely get, but it's a very, it's a very powerful thing. And I think a lot of people could benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. What, uh, and you may have covered this in some of your other answers, but coming out of this experience, like, what are you most proud of? Like, what would you say, man, I'm, this is the thing that I'm just like most proud of coming out of this thing. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I was able to draw on so many experiences and that I've had throughout my life and, and, and skills that I've developed throughout my life. I mean, if I hadn't have had the upbringing, if I hadn't have had the experience that I've been fortunate enough to have throughout my life, I, I don't know that I could have done that, but probably the biggest, the thing that I'm most proud of is, and I, it's unfortunate they, they, they didn't show a lot of it in the show, but was, was coming through that period of, of depression that I went through coming out the other side and having those, those lessons, those stoic lessons forced into my, the core of who I am, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the most valuable thing. It's, it's probably the most, the thing that I'm most proud of. And it's hard to, it's hard to convey that to people, you know, because people don't, they don't understand, you know, they've never been most people have never been through any kind of try like trying challenge on that on that type of scale but yeah i I think that would have to be it for sure that's a good answer (laughs) yeah real good one well clay thank you so much for Mm -hmm. i mean for sharing these experiences on the show thanks thanks for visiting with us about the experience and and giving us a really really awesome kind of you know behind the scenes look at at everything that you went through and the adversity that you faced and lessons learned and so much substance there so and uh so thank you for that thanks for being you and uh just yeah genuinely appreciate it yeah well i appreciate it i'm looking forward to when you guys can come down to florida and chase some hogs for those mm-hmm. thick boats. We're, mm-hmm. we're uh we're ready so yeah i mean uh and I actually, I will point out, so getting, jumping back into content related things and Jim, you touched on it earlier, but we had visited, went down to visit Clay at his Florida ranch, we made those bows with him. Yep. So we might be going back down to uh, go chase some, some hogs like Clay just with said. those so bows, with yeah. those, those bows. And so, and if you want to check out that content. You can find all of that on anywhere that you normally listen to podcasts or on YouTube. It's called the Clay Hayes Self Bow Series, something along those lines. It was a pod venture that we did. And, uh, yeah, 
and I, I think you'll be able to see some of that on Clay's website, possibly yes. sometime down the road in the future, which you're probably already conditioned to view all the great content there, so you can see some great recaps of Clay's uh, experience on a loan. You That's can right. access all the other great videos that he's got on, you know, building self bows and just related and uh, building bush. all the crazy stuff that he did. Yeah, yeah, all the related bushcraft stuff. So uh, check it out. Do that. Also, check out Alone if you haven't actually seen it yet, so in that case, you don't know what we're talking about. You kind of know the ending, though, so um, it's still worth watching. I can confirm. It is still worth watching, despite knowing the end and having everybody talking about it. Uh, so do that, and uh, yeah, we'll see everybody on the next one. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Clay. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.